You're listening to the Deep Purple Podcast, a fan podcast about one of the most legendary bands of all time, Deep Purple. We take a look at the music, history, and people behind the band Deep Purple and beyond. Welcome to the Deep Purple Podcast, the first and only podcast devoted to one of the greatest bands in rock history, Deep Purple. Today's episode is episode number 112, John Lord Gemini Suite. And coming to you from the Gemini suburbs of Chicago, I'm your host, Nathan Beaudry. And coming to you from the suburbs of Providence, I'm your co-host, John Parmesan the Matola. <laughs> so you had Parmesan today. Yeah, this is a recurring theme. Chicken Parmesan. Chicken, yeah, that, that, there could be many versions of Parmesan that you could have. What is your favorite kind of Parmesan? Chicken. Or, yeah. You know, uh, yeah, I'm not I'm not big into eggplant. No, I love eggplant um, parmesan. If it's if it's deep fried enough, the texture of eggplant kind of uh, um doesn't always do it for it me. It can and be um, if, if it's not done well, it, yeah, it's not good. But yeah. if it's done well, it's quite good. And veal parmesan just never no. appealed to me. Same reason. Hmm. Same reason. Um, I just remember when I one of the one of the first jobs I ever had at the restaurant uh, when I worked at that restaurant Christopher's. Um, uh, <laughs> oh boy. There was this one of the waitresses had this had had her husband. I can't remember what his name is. He would come and sit at the bar. He was an old old guy, and he would sit there and drink, and he'd have a cigarette, and and he had like this really like this this mouth like like just like 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 almost like he was missing teeth or something. And my boss, who's just one of the funniest guys I've ever worked with, just made the job just so much fun. So we we had veal parmesan on the menu, and he fried this piece of veal, and it came out of the fryer, and it like kind of folded over on itself, and the little like yeah. but like the little papyrus plates that you take you put it onto to drain the the fat, and it kind of folded over on itself, so it looked like a mouth. And he came up to me, and he was like. He pretended he was that guy, <laughs> like the waitress's <laughs> husband, and he started like I forgot what his name is, and he's he said like Hey, it's just George or whatever, and he's like and he's moving the thing up and down, and the funny thing is it looked exactly like him. It was just really, it's just it was one of the funniest things I've ever like. You know, just one of those times where like I had to take a minute, I had to like go in the back, like my sides were hurting. It was just the perfect moment and he did it so straight faced like it's just uh, like, like matter of fact like hey check it out it's George um, I wish I could remember that well, I love pro- stuff like that probably better that I can't remember either of their names I'm sure they're not listening yeah yeah I, I, and I actually I would be shocked if that guy was still alive that was that was like what 30 years ago oh. almost um, and he was yeah, quite, so if he was really old then he he was quite old and unhealthy then I uh, yeah, poor guy he was a really nice guy but it was just mm. kind of a funny moment um, but anyway, yeah, I said, it's funny, I said Gemini coming into here, and it, it is, we are actually in the astrological sign of Gemini as we, as we record this. I'm, I'm not good with horoscopes, so I had to look it up. So Gemini runs mm. from, uh, I don't know what the dates are, but we are in Gemini. As a Gemini born on May 24th, no, you'll have that's... a persistent and ambitious personality. All that happy horse crap. Um, so. Well, that's not me. Nope, you're that's not a Gemini. Memory. What you wait, wait, you're uh, an Aquarius? Aquarius. Yeah, yeah. I know because my dad's an Aquarius and he's just a few days after you. Yeah. 
Are, are, yeah, are we known for being difficult or something? I think. <laughs> I don't know. I think that's all of them. I mean, I am in particular. <laughs> um, so, um, anyways, um, so uh, aside from all that, I do. I am coming back with some Rhode Island facts. You? Oh, oh my so, goodness! Wait, wait, wait. Okay, I'm ready now. Okay, so uh, you know, piggyback in there on chicken parmesan, mm-hmm. Italian, etc. So, of the top cities outside of Italy. Mm-hmm. The fifth most populated city in the world with Italians, number five, is Providence, Providence Rhode, Rhode Island. Island. Of course, it makes that makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have guessed it was that high, but it but it makes sense. Me neither. There you go. Yeah. So um, I don't remember all the other ones leading up to it, but the first one really kind of surprised me. It was um, Buenos Aires, Argentina? Really. That makes sense. It's a very uh, mm-hmm. multicultural sort of town. Yeah, but number one outside of Italy with a largest Italian population. And I mean, I don't, you know, I mean, uh, you know, there are some people that are more like well-read than me that are like, come on, you idiot. You should have known that. But uh, Everyone knows that the fifth my, most the populous most imp- Italian population <laughs> in the world is Providence, Rhode Island. <laughs> Eric, it should have been on the tip of your tongue. Yeah, yeah, well, I mean, I was like, I mean, I knew that we had a lot of Italians out here. Oh, but sure. I, mean, I would have thought that like maybe even Boston would be more because it's a bigger city. They have, uh, you know, um, uh, Hanover Street, Mike's Pastry, that whole, you know, little Italy section, you know. Mm-hmm. But So was New York number two, maybe? Yeah. Um, yeah, New York was. That makes sense. Definitely up there. It was like two or three. Um, I can't remember the other ones, um, to be honest. Um, actually, the uh, in terms of countries, do you know what the the number five country is? Number five country of for same, Italian like Italian population. Yes, most populated by Italians. Switzerland, Canada, Canada. Wow, that's kind of surprising. Mm-hmm. The Italians, they yeah. love Canada. Surprising facts. See, that's it. I'm, I'm, yeah, well, I, I, yeah, I figured that since you have some roots there, you know. I'm half Italian and half Canadian. So there you go. I'd be, I'd be right. I'm, I should move. I've been thinking I should move anyway. That's just going to seal the deal. Oh, hey. Oh, so there you go. There's your, <laughs> there's your Italian and Italian and Rhode Island facts for the episode. Fantastic. By your friend, Parmesan and Matola. And while we're on the subject, uh, you know, being in Chicago, Chicago has the world's largest Polish population outside of Warsaw. So there you go. Um, but so, hey, if, if you know, hmm. y- you come you come to us looking for facts about Deep Purple and and well, maybe not facts, <laughs> loose talk about Deep Purple. And you get facts about all sorts of <laughs> things that you'd never, never would have bargained on. Veal Parmesan, Italian populations. I mean, this is this is a service we're providing. So, you know, if you get value out of the show, whether it's about Deep Purple or various forms of Parmesan, why don't you support us and give us a little value back for as little as one dollar a month? You can help support the Deep Purple Show podcast. <laughs> show the Deep Purple Show. You um, remember what the name of this is? Yeah, what is this again? <laughs> Come taste the pod. Come taste the podcast. The Deep the Deep Purple Show. Oh man, we missed the boat on that. I one. know. Well, it's our, it's our backup for when Deep Purple. Maybe we should change it. <laughs> Just change it now. Come taste the podcast. <laughs> I mean, the logo would be great. <laughs> Come taste the podcast. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, if, if you want to help help mm. us uh, continue on and put some money towards the new computer fund, and we were just talking before the show about some uh, modifications we're going to make that shouldn't really 
that you won't be able to detect at all, but it will make the show much better and easier to produce. Uh, so if you want to help that, you can join in either on Patreon or PayPal. If you could also want to support the show, you can buy merch at our Etsy store and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. That helps new people discover the show. Didn't even check this week if we had a new uh, a new review in. Uh, doesn't look like we do. Not in America, anyway. I'm doing my quick check. Um, but we'll, uh, we'll maybe we'll get back to some older. I, I quite frankly, I just lost track of which older reviews I'd read, and I didn't want to reread one. So I was like, well, I guess I'll just go with newer reviews moving forward. Check so. Argentina. <laughs> Let me, Check I can't. Argentina. I can't do that. Check. Maybe maybe I'll do it uh, in the in, in the interim. I'll, I'll look for something. But um, but yeah, that's the greatest way to support the show. And and speaking of people supporting the show, hey oh. We've got a new patron joining us at the $5 money lender tier. Zwapper, the electric alchemist is joining us at the $5 (laughs) tier. Um, And so uh, Uh, he says, that's great. Thank you guys for a great podcast. I'm a longtime listener, but late to the patron table. Keep up the great work. And keep your pies eeled, the electric alchemist. And then he goes on to say that um, he didn't think it was fair that the $1 patrons all got the cool names. So he made up a made-up name at the $5 tier. Hey, there's no rules, guys. You can do that. And um, and uh, speaking of which, hey new patron coming in at the, at the $1 made-up name tier. This time, let me just check my email real quick. Yes, I didn't hear back, so hopefully this is okay. Coming in with a real name, so he's balancing this out. We've got a $1 patron with a real name and a $5 with a made-up name, and the $1 patron that is new is named Hans Lilia. So thank you very much for supporting the show. Hopefully I pronounced that correctly. I, I always send an email back saying, is this the name you want to use, or is this uh, the pronunciation? But this came in just like a couple of hours ago, so uh, very brand- hot off the presses. And um, we're recording this in the... So you didn't under- want to make up a name? Hans Lilia, um, or you, or you, or you don't know yet. I don't know what. Um, I think that's it's either Norwegian or Swedish. The name from what I from what I researched, I I found something saying it's a Swedish name, and there was a guy making a comment saying that's bullcrap. I'm Norwegian, and that's my name. So <laughs> I was like, I guess it, you know, like any name, it could it could go other ways. You know, my name could be Canadian sure. or French or whatever. Um, but so yeah, so it's one of those two nationalities, most likely. Um, so um, the how about the uh, the the Swedish fish or slash Norwegian fish? <laughs> Norwegian fish. The Norwegian fish. That's one of those things. Oh, like, is like, it a thing? Like, like, do they have Swedish fish in Sweden, or is that just like an American thing? I don't know. Like, do they? Do we call them Swedish fish? Because it's know, it's a fish candy. F- I think we. I think they do because um, I know at IKEA you can get like the little Swedish fish, but they might call them something else in Sweden. In America, we call them Swedish fish, um, and they're delicious. So over there, they just probably call them fish. Just fish. <laughs> you go to a restaurant. I'd like the fish, and they bring you a bag full of gummy candies. <laughs> Very confusing. <laughs> I'm sure there's a there's a word for it. Um, but thank you very much uh, for those two new uh, two new. Uh, Patrons, very much appreciated. Really appreciate everyone that supports our show. Speaking of people that support our show, thanks to our executive level patrons coming in at the $20 Shades of Deep Pockets tier. We have Ryan M. at the $15 Highball Shooter tier. Alan Ain't Too Proud to Beg at the Turn It Up to $11 tier. We have Frank Teelgard Mortensen, Clay Wambacher, and Mickelstein. And at the $10 Someone Came tier, Steve Seaborg of NameOnAnything.com and AllTheWorldsOfStage.net. Jeff Bryce, Gerald Kelly, Victor Campos, 
and Richard Fusey. Thank you to all of you for your generous donations to the Deep Purple podcast. Um, uh, big thanks to Jeff Bryce, who once again uh, answered a lot of questions and sent me some information on t- today's episode when I was kind of just chatting with him about the album. So really always appreciate Jeff's support of the show. And then I also put together just I was just curious the other day. And I, I st- so I went through the all the uh, email notifications, and everything. and I put together a list of the order that the patrons came in. And I just want to give a special appreciation to Clay Wambacher, who was our first patron. So I was like, and mm, Steve really? Seaborg was a close second, came in right after. Uh, so thank you to to both of you. Well, to everybody, of course, but to uh, to, to those that have been in early and uh, often here for, for two years now, gen- generously donating to the show. We really appreciate um, all your support to new to patrons, new and old alike. Much appreciated. All right. <clears throat> so this is the point of the show where we we talk about the album and talk about our history with the album. And uh, this might be brief, John, but <laughs> what is your history with the Gemini Suite? I have no history. <laughs> Moving I mean, right along. <laughs> I mean, I've I've obviously heard of it, but mm-hmm. um, you know, I I just never. It was never available um, when we were younger. And um, like most other things, I mean, I'd heard of all the side projects and that was just one thing that was never available. And then I just kind of, you know, forgot about it, moved on. And I'm sure that I had chances to hear it since then or have access to it, but just never really thought of it. So this will be a new listen for me. Yes. Um, And um, so... Full disclosure, this will be a first listen for me as well, um, in a way. And um, I'm not surprised. That, that is um, because when – oh, crap. Why did this come out like this? Um, trying to get a, cop, a copy of this picture here. Um, but when, when the, my first encounter with this album was going to Boston, where we would go to get all of our, like – cool deep purple related stuff stuff that was a little harder to come by imports and yeah yeah, there were a few main places tower records and then hmv which is a british chain so we could get cool stuff there and i got a lot of my deep purple stuff there was this other place do you remember there was this like almost like it was kind of almost like the arcade in providence but there was a record store inside of it and there was like a sabaro you could go to do you remember that place maybe it was the it might have been the coop the Harvard Coop. I can't remember. It was like the Harvard Coop was like kind of the, almost like this uh, indoor mall sort of situation. And there was like a record store up there, but it was like on a second floor or a third floor. And I stumbled upon this, which is um, not what we're going to review today. But this is Deep Purple and the Orchestra of the Light Music Society, conducted by Malcolm Arnold, Gemini Suite Live. Uh, so I saw this, I hadn't heard it before, snatched it right up, listened to it a few times. And then this came out, maybe this was 93, 94, something like that. So it was early on in my deep purple, uh, life. And I had, I had already heard the concerto with you at that point. And so this was kind of like, Oh, this is something different. Let me, let me pick it up. And I remember it was, it was in the, the bin along with say, um, like before I forget and Saraband and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking like, which one should I get? So I said, let me get this one. Cause it's all of deep purple. And I didn't get the, the other ones on that trip. 
But that was my first exposure to Gemini Suite, and we'll get into a little bit about what we're reviewing today and what makes that different. So as we know, John Lord, we talked about this a lot in our concerto episode, but that's two years old at this point. So you can go back and listen to its episode, like, I don't know, nine or 10 or something really early on um, Mm -hmm. where we, we watched the concerto video and talked about it. And John Lord had been obsessed with combining rock music and orchestras. And he had tried it a few times with the Artwoods, his, his band that he was in previous to Deep Purple. Um, they, they had booked this new, new jazz orchestra in 1966, but they ended up working with, uh, it never happened. And they went, they started to do develop something with this German conductor that never materialized. And then the Artwoods broke up. So that was kind of left on the floor. So you've got a few situations where John Lord keeps upping the ante on the book of Taliesin. He brings in the string section for the song anthem and then in on their 1969 album of course there's april which is a big long whatever 12 minute song that's got rock band elements and composed elements organ parts um and that was kind of the closest he came at that point to to combining orchestra and rock then of course he get he gets the uh the job to to write the concerto writes they book the royal albert hall and without the concerto even being written and then decide, okay, well, here's the date we're going to be performing the concerto at the Royal Albert Hall, get to work. Now you need to write it. He writes it. They perform it. As we all know, it caused a little bit of a rift with the band. They weren't super keen on it. It was one of the first major debuts of Mark II was doing the concerto, which is kind of doesn't fit really along the line of what Mark II was known for. So, um, Uh, John Lord says this, it got us labeled as a group who jumped on the classical rock bandwagon. It drew attention to us at a time when we needed it, but we weren't expecting to be labeled as a group that plays with an orchestra. It caused um, a rift in the group. What they were afraid of and what I hadn't seen was happening was that people uh, weren't sure what we were all about. They got frightened that we get railroaded into playing hundreds of concertos. They thought I didn't want to play rock and roll. And there was also even a point where John Lord almost left the band because it was causing this kind of resentment. And this is kind of almost the changing we talked about in the early days how John Lord was kind of the, the spokesperson for the band and the band leader. This was kind of was the middle of the shift between the concerto and maybe in rock where it became a little more apparent that Richie was more of the leader of the band. Um, uh, not that they necessarily had a designated leader, but he took a little bit more of the, of that responsibility, right. even if it wasn't like overtly declared. Um, so after the concerto, as we know, they did one last concerto date in America at the Hollywood bowl, where famously the score to the concerto was lost. We po- hypothesize on the show that Richie threw it into the ocean, <laughs> um, we don't know, but but when he when they redid the concerto twenty years later, he had to, um, or was it thirty years? About thirty years later, uh, they had to rewrite it from scratch uh, because the, the the original score had been lost. <clears throat> so, um, so Lord gets commissioned by the BBC to write another one. They really liked how it went. They liked the TV event, the special. The BBC is like, well, let's do that again. Let's write something else, and. John Lord was a little dissatisfied with the original concerto because he felt it was still a little bit more like the band would play, the orchestra would play. There was a little bit of interplay together, but he didn't feel it was like as cohesive. He kept kind of striving to get more and more close to that. And the Gemini Suite was his his kind of final, I don't want to say final, but it was his next and latest attempt to bring the two together in a more cohesive way, so, uh, more so than the, the orchestra did. So, so at, the, at this point... Um, 
they booked the show and they performed it once. Deep Purple performed the concerto reluctantly um, with the Orchestra of the Light Music, that that performance that I just showed you. It was recorded um, with Malcolm Arnold, September, <clears throat> September 17th, 1970. And at this point, they were in a much better position. Uh, the, the Black Knight was uh, having some chart success, uh, but B- Blackmore basically said, there cannot be any publicity for this. I don't want it advertised. I don't want anybody to know about it. We're going to do it. We're going to get it done and we're going to move on. So it was, it was, uh, they performed it. It was reviewed by a couple of magazines. It aired on British and Danish radio and then it just faded into obscurity. It was, it, it didn't get released in, ever, on record until 1993, which is that copy that um, I just showed you, which was mm-hmm. the Deep Purple performing it. Um, so John Lord decides at this point he wants to record a studio version of it. Um, Richie Blackmore says, well, you're going to have to find somebody else because I'm not doing it. Ian Gillen says the same thing. Uh, so that's why he gets the lineup that he gets. And we'll get into that in a little bit. So they recorded the album at Abbey Road Studio One. The main orchestra was recorded there. And then Delane Lee, they did the studio rock sections and the mixing. Um, Ian Gillen didn't agree to do it, so they brought in, to replace Ian Gillen, oddly, Yvonne Elliman and Tony Ashton to replace Ian Gillen. Um, <laughs> okay. Yes. Um, well, that's, that's, a, that's a Jesus Christ Superstar um, link right there. Yeah, exactly. Two people from Jesus Christ the Superstar. Y- Yvonne Elliman. One a little bit more prominent than the other. Tony Ashton is just like, says one line, but, um, but he's in the chorus. So, oh, yeah. yeah, but she was a part of Purple Records and Lord loved her voice and okay. decided it would work really well. Um, in, in, in Ian Gillen's yeah, biography. Great voice. Oh, fantastic. Um, in Ian Gillen's uh, book, Child in Time, he describes Blackmore. He says Blackmore just went berserk. When he saw, he found that there was a promotional poster for the concert, and he said the concerto has become a millstone around their our, our necks. Like he was just like this. Con- he was convinced, like we talked about during the concerto episode, that th- this concerto was just going to haunt them for the rest of his life, and he's going to ha- have to end up, you know, fifty years later, still playing, uh, playing these these dates with orchestras. He just didn't want to do it. Um, he wanted mm. them to be a rock band. Oh, he went on to, yeah, no, he went on to just you know. Playing like you know with um, minstrels and fairies and pan flutes and <laughs> instead it is, a, so it is kind of an interesting. Good. And he also talks about constantly about how much he loves classical music. So it's yeah, he's a very um, complicated man. So it's hard hard to say. So um, so in John's own words, John says the music on this album was originally written as a com- uh, as a commission for the BBC and was first performed at the Festival Hall with Deep Purple and the Orchestra of the Light Music Society in September 1970. When it was broadcast on British and Danish radio, I composed the suite during the first six months of 1970, each movement being built around the musical personalities of the members of Deep Purple. However, during the period that the concert and the recording of this music grew away from the initial concept... It became to my mind not so much a composition for group and orchestra, but more simply music for amplified instruments and orchestra. To this end, we decided not to make it a Deep Purple project and to use specified soloists. The title is an allusion to the main characteristic of people born under the sign of Gemini, the twins, my own birth sign. Many thanks are due to all the soloists, the very fine London Symphony Orchestra, and to Mr. Malcolm Arnold for his invaluable help. A special thank you to Martin, Ian, and Roger. So... Um, so that, so originally it was written, it has six movements, 
two of them are one's piano, one's organ, but the other ones are bass, guitar, vocals, um, and drums. So he basically wanted this, you know, the, the movements to, to revolve around the members of Deep Purple and their personalities and showcase their musical abilities. And the same is true of the studio version, although it's a little bit different. So that's kind of the background of the idea behind the album. Um, and it's very interesting that uh, we are in the month of or the, the zodiac sign of Gemini or whatever the heck you want to call it, um, because that was just a complete accident that that happened i just look googled it after we started recording and we're talking about gemini so how about that we're recording this under gemini it'll be released under gemini if you're into that sort of hippy dippy nonsense enjoy <laughs> um but there's you know too many musicians and everything in this uh, orchestra to to mention uh we'll have links to all of them in the show notes and lists um the, it's conducted by Malcolm Arnold, who conducted the concerto and was a huge, huge influence and support to to um, to John Lord. Uh, I was engineered by uh, Dave Stock, um, who engineered the electric sections. Martin Birch, who mixed the album at Delane Lee. Uh, Mike Gray, who engineered uh, the orchestral sections with Philip McDonald at Abbey Road and Philip McDonald, who also worked on the Abbey Road parts. Um so yeah, that's the uh, that's the thing. the The art for the the artwork for this album is very. There's like a lot of different versions. So um, the initial version is this, which you might be familiar with if you've seen this in the Deep Purple sections. It's the the, the Gemini twins, and it's funny. You see the album behind me. Um, my my son, who is also a twin, not a Gemini though. Um, he came down here the other day, and he's like, Dad, why? Why? What are those guys doing? And I was like, "Why are they flirting with each other?" <laughs> I was like, "They kind of do look like they're making eyes at each other." Um, but uh, hmm. I was like, "I was like, well, they're twins, so I don't think they're flirting with each other." But who knows with all that crazy stuff that well, goes on? And like, also, they're also nude. Well, they not right? really. They they're 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 yes. not wearing shirts. So well, they've the, got what's that? The that guy in the front though is he. It's not wearing pants. Well, we'll show you when we get to the gatefold, I guess. We'll show you what's going on there. Ah, okay. Don't worry. It's it's not going to get get us kicked off of YouTube or anything. At least I hope not. But so this was the original album cover, Purple uh, Purple Records. It features the two twins kind of lying in this beautiful garden with a waterfall in the background and looking looking lovingly at each other. Um and then the gatefold is here. You've got Five. Oh, and I didn't mention. Um, I, I, I'm sorry, I forgot to mention. Albert Lee is doing the guitar because obviously we mentioned Richie Blackmore refused. So Albert Lee, as we've seen on Green Bullfrog and many other occasions, is a great. Um, he has a great similar style. They grew up kind of in the same camp. I think they both learned under Big Jim Sullivan. Mm-hmm. So they've got very similar styles. And although Albert Lee tend, tended to go a little bit more like a, uh, a little bit more like of a different route i don't and i'm not familiar enough with him uh to say exactly but he feels feels like he's more like a finger picking kind of kind of guy but i think his solo is in his blues style is very similar to blackmore so it's got big pictures of the, the you've got john lord roger glover albert lee tony ashton avon element and then ian pace and then you've got like a little uh, blurb here with the sections and all the players and then the back side of the gatefold show, shows the full what's ah. that yeah, so it shows the full okay. thing. So one of the and if you know stuff about 
the zodiac signs maybe you know a little bit more but it looks like one of the one of the gemini twins seems to have like the body of a squid and the other one has like the body of like a multi-legged chicken or bird of some sort and they're all kind of like intertwined with each other and he's even actually the one twin is actually sticking his talons into the squid twins things and drawing blood which is very weird because they on the other half of it, they don't seem to be bothered by any of this, but it's almost like their their bottom halves of them are fighting, and the top halves of them are lying in this weird garden. So, very yeah, interesting. Very, um, yeah. It is. Uh, um, I think that the the inside of the album, I think it's it's um it's pretty funny how everybody gets a normal picture except for Tony Ashton. He's just got his, like his eyes closed and he's like, <laughs> yeah. And his is all blur. His picture's all blurry. It's almost like they didn't. Ha- well, it's probably like we've talked about these albums before. Um, they probably didn't have a picture of him, and it was like the last minute and they just found this one and they said, ah, we'll make it work. You know, back, back then you would have I had mean, even to- like, even like everybody else, like even like, uh, like Albert Lee, he's looking off to the side, but it looks like it looks like everybody but him and Tony Ashton had like studio pictures mm-hmm. done because everybody's just kind of like looking straight ahead and like you got the other two who are just kind of like, huh? You know, kind of like kind right. of like Glenn Hughes Christmas album, like album cover photo shoots. Yeah. It's like <laughs> when are you taking the picture? That's it. That's the picture. Damn, I'm already packing up my gear. I'm <laughs> heading home. But yeah, I mean it could be like but back this is, back this then. This is if- very yeah. If Tony Ashton was, say, in America on tour and they needed the thing done, they'd have to find whatever picture they had around because the, the alternative would be contacting somebody in America to track him down, a professional photographer, take the picture, send it back to England. I mean, it would have all taken time. So they maybe just decided to go with whatever was quickest and easiest. Um, yeah. And just so, my my OCD doesn't like this because it's like you have like the pictures are all different. Yvonne Elliman's head is is bigger and mm-hmm. you know, it's just like it than everybody else's. So um, it's still cool though. I like the concept of that. And then all the kind of studio picks behind it, but it's, it's definitely a very seventies looking album, you know, which, uh, you know, is kind of almost like um, a little, a little bit uh, a mix of planned out, but also kind of like, yeah, eh, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's it, yeah. It, I think it's, it's one of those things where it's, um, it, it, it's kind of sloppily done, but it works. You know, I like, I do like kind of like that collage yeah. style, but yeah, you're right. Uh, Yvonne Hellman's head seems to, yeah, it's like much closer up on her. So her head takes up more and maybe they did that on purpose because they didn't have enough text to fit up here. So they said, just make Yvonne Hellman's head bigger. That's fine. <clears throat> um, but uh, the, the record label there, obviously the purple label, nothing crazy right there. Now, in North America, it was released in 1973. So the, the first one came out in... Seven, the performance was in 1970. The, the UK version came out in 71. And in America, it was reissued um, with this cover, which is like mm-hmm. a cloudscape, some like angel with wings, like bare-chested angel with wings lying on the in the foreground looking at herself in a mirror. Um, maybe a volcano in the background and a gigantic like fish coming out like way up in the background about to swallow like a planet. So it's a really cool cover. It's unclear. I found a a couple of vague references to it, but some, some were saying the British cover may have just been uh, too controversial 
with you know the the like like you said it looked like two nude yeah. guys uh so like ah two nude guys we can't have we can't have two guys with their shirts off let's put a woman with their shirt off on the cover of this one <laughs> although she's much smaller in the in the shot um but uh they all, they also said they 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 might just didn't like the British cover. The British cover is weird. It does look weird. Um, I mean, it's yeah. kind of it's kind of cool, but it's just a bizarre cover. So that's I think why they went with it's this. Le- it's less bizarre without the. It's less bizarre without the gatefold. Yeah, it makes a heck of you know, a lot. I look more at sense. it. And I'm like, okay, I could. Yeah, I could see that being like a painting in a gallery or something like that. But then you open it up and you see the squid legs and stuff, and it's like, okay, like. <laughs> hell is this <laughs> um and then the back of the they didn't have a gatefold on the u.s version they've got that but it's the kind of the same pictures a slightly different layout uh same blurry picture of tony ashton um a uh, kind of thrown together <laughs> and then um it does have some text here which is um which is what i read uh earlier well is this what i read earlier um yeah, about how he talks about it's that the Gemini is his birth sign, and then it. One cool thing is they they list all the players in the in the orchestra and under their birth sign. So they start with Gemini. They really they list all the Gemini's, the Cancer. They list all the Cancers. Ultimate seventies album focusing around um, about around zodiac signs. Um, it was re it was re released in two thousand eight with Simon Robinson with a with a new cover again, which shows like a bunch of different constellations. Um, and it kind of lists John Lord, Roger Glover, and Ian Pace of Deep Purple, Tony Ashton of Ashton Gardner Dyke and Co., Albert Lee of Heads, Hands, and Feet, Yvonne Elliman from, from Jesus Christ Superstar, performing John Lord's Gemini Suite. Then it was released again a couple years back under Ear Music uh, with this cover, which is kind of looks like ruins of a bunch of like ancient Greek or Roman statues, and these two statues, like kind of with their hands on each other's shoulders. Um, and uh, a lot of good re-releases like of this. this one. Yeah, this one's kind of a cool, cool-looking one. I think the, I think, yeah, this is a, a rare situation where I think the original album cover might be the weakest of the four. Uh, usually, I don't like them messing around with with album covers, but, um, but we of course try to keep things as uh, true to the original as possible. So, um. Then it does the traditional thing of, you know, John Lord appears courtesy of Harvest Records, same thing with Roger Glover and Ian Pace, and Albert Lee courtesy of Island Records, and Tony Ashton courtesy of Capitol Records. And that's uh, that's a little quick rundown of the the album art. Uh, had a hard time finding, like, who the actual artists were. Found, like, photographers uh, designed by Jim Willis and West Four Designs, uh, ph- photography by Jane Jackson, who would have probably done all those photos that were cut up and put on in there, but not a heck of a lot beyond that. So, or or about the new covers. All right, that's all the that's all the information you need to be prepared to listen to what we're going to listen to, which is the six movements of the Gemini Suite. But before we go there, we must of course thank our core level patrons. Coming in at the $6.66 tier, no one is still available for anyone feeling evil enough to join. At the $6.65 almost evil tier, we have Kenny Wymore. At the $5.99 nice price tier, Fielding Fowler and Dr. Jill Brees. At the $5 money lender tier, Greg Sealby, John Convery, Arthur Smith, German Heindel, Adrian Hernandez, Jesper Alman, Alexi the Perfect Stranger Slepikoff, James North, Mark Hodgetts, Kev Roberts, Will Porter, and... 
Heyo, Zwapper, the Electric Alchemist. And then at the $3 Nobody's Perfect tier, we have Peter Gardo, Ian DeRosier, Mark Roback, Anton Glaving, Andrew Meyer, Duncan Leesk, Stuart McCord, and Heyo again. Oh, wait, no. No, he comes later. Sorry. Unheyo. Un- unheyo that. <laughs> unheyo. Unheyo. <laughs> it was an, a premature heyo. Um. <laughs> you are correct, sir. Okay. Um, all right. So with that, I think we're ready to launch into this. Uh, the first, uh, the first part is guitar, and the soloist is of course Albert Lee to kick off the Gemini Suite. So here we go. That part kind of reminds me of the concerto. There's a very similar part with Richie. Yeah. And the sound quality is much better. It was done in a studio versus kind of that live recording. Yeah. Some good stuff. Very cool. Um, and you can already tell, I think, how it's integrated more into the orchestral segments. Yeah. Whereas before it was. I was just going to say. It was, yeah, it was a little blocky in the concerto. And I, I love that yeah, John Lord was yeah. constantly challenging himself to. Up the ante. But I mean, you can already tell this is more fully realized, kind of what he was probably hoping to aim for with the concerto. But, you know, as we know, he was under time constraints and, you know, all that. So. So far, I'm feeling it's pretty successful. Kind of really matching that little groove that Albert Lee had going on. And early on, you can tell that Albert Lee is a great analog for Richie. Mm hmm. Yeah, they're very similar, but you can tell he's his own player. But on the Green Bullfrog album, we had a lot of like troubled trying to determine like who was who yeah oh yeah this groove this sounds very like 70s movie soundtrack you know But you can tell why they chose Albert Lee. I mean, you could picture Richie playing this. Yep. 
And it'll be For interesting sure. to, if we ever get to the deep purple version of the Gemini Suite, see what the differences are. Because I know there are mm. some, but but you figure there's not going to be a ton of differences in what the orchestra's playing if they're following a score. So, but I know, but I know, right. John Lord says he did make some adjustments going mm. into the studio for it. I love how the timpani are tuned to that same notes. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah. That's so cool. Oh, that was nice. be very easy to make this be like four bars of guitar solo four bars of orchestra doing something but the way they throw them yeah. back and forth is, is so random it makes it really interesting you don't know what to expect I love his tone awesome a beautiful piece that he's playing there. I mean, yeah, it's just really full. Almost reminded me of Coronarius Redig there for a minute. This would be on the record collection of any like kind of 70s stoner looking to just vibe out and listen to this. Be a great one to have on in the background. You know, in a way, it, it kind of reminds me of like that um, really early version of a Steve Vai composition. Yeah. Because he was, you know, he played some stuff that. Yeah, totally. That was very similar to this. Those those transitions just work so well. That that groove that dun dun dun. That's another one that sounds kind of like a. Uh, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, it sounds like uh, The Warning by Ainsley Dunsbar, you know? Yeah, yeah.
guitar almost does sound like a little low in the mix during the orchestral parts. I don't know if that was intentional. Yeah, it's going to be hard to mix that with an entire orchestra and not have one overpower the other. And I don't know if they wanted it to just sound like more like it was an instrument in the orchestra versus being on top of everything. But obviously in rock music, you'd, yeah. it would kind of dominate during a guitar solo. You wonder if Richie of today would be as against doing something like this because just so strange it's kind of i guess it's kind of like when he he doesn't who knows what his real motivations are but like when he didn't like the whatever the funk direction that they're going in but he's so good at doing anything that you wonder if it's just him having a moment or just not wanting to be involved or (laughs) or just just not not being in the mood because he, he he does it so well well, regardless, I have to say that, um, um, you know, uh, I don't I don't miss Richie on this at all. I think Albert Lee was excellent on this. I mean, his his playing, his tone was like um, it was recorded and played like flawlessly. thought it mm-hmm. was like fantastic. Yeah. Like I really enjoyed it. Like, I mean, that's that's a I think a rare example that I can think of of like an early 70s album where the like the guitar tone is and the the playing is like just perfect. Mm-hmm. I think. I'd really, agree. Really it sounded, great. sounded, uh, sounded pretty incredible. Just great style and dynamics to his playing. Like, again, I don't know. I don't know if he's mostly a finger player. It sounds like he was maybe using his fingers, at least for part of it. Um, but, but yeah, you get a lot more dynamics there and you're, he, during the quiet parts, he really got like, soulful on it and just yeah really nailed it so um so yeah these these funny thing about this album the the track names are just drums vocals bass guitar organ so not not super (laughs) inspired names but um how would you rank guitar well i i really enjoyed it so i give it a i give it a 4.5 um, I thought it was really, I mean, from the guitar to the the orchestra too, I don't want to discount that. I mean, that was just really like just excellently recorded. Um, I think maybe the thing that kept me from giving it a five is, is that there's still a little bit of separation between the uh, the kind of the, the rock and the orchestra side. Like it did blend a lot better than yeah. the concerto. But there were times where, you know, he was just playing solo on his own, which was great. But I would have loved to hear more of like the the orchestra playing as the backup band while he soloed over it, as opposed to doing solos just with no other music. Um, but I mean, that that's like a I, I don't know, I guess a minor criticism, um, you know, which, um, you know, you know, when you uh, in uh, what am I, <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> um, 
in in considering like how great the how great like the the music is um just the um maybe the arrangement a little bit or the composition is is very minor kind of um i guess cr- critique that i would have yep um i'm i'm torn i'm going to give it a 4 i really thought it was a great showcase of albert lee and just really interesting start to the album just just mm-hmm. very um, interesting music you got all sorts of things you got cool groove like bluesy grooves and almost kind of slow funky grooves the classical elements everything blending together really well great start to to the album and you can already kind of tell from listening to this that it's an upgrade to the concerto which you know we love the concerto and it's like such a great piece of history and piece of music but like you said there's so much more a year had passed well i guess two years by the time you get to the studio version of this and he'd kind of fleshed out a lot of the things he you know if you do this kind of thing multiple times you get better and better at it each time and it shows that he definitely got a lot better so and honestly it's like it's it's interesting and cool to hear something different um like i mean if we if i haven't heard this before and you you said you heard the live version. Yeah, just right? the live version. And it like was in ago. whatever, 93, 94. Whenever I bought that, was that would have been the right. year that I last listened to it. I just, it was one of those things. Like, right. I liked it, but it's kind of like the concerto in the same way where, not necessarily something I was just going to put on and listen to in, in, at that time anyway. Uh, but yeah. I, you know, it was one of the things I appreciated and then just kind of moved on. So I probably listened to it right, three or four times. Also, like, this being. Right, this being like kind of a newer discovery. Like we know the concerto, we already know it. We've known it for years. So this is like discovering a new piece of music. So it's you know already it's more exciting. Right. You know. Yeah, yeah. The three or four times I listened to it twenty eight years ago (laughs) didn't really stick with me so much that I'm like, oh yeah, this part of course. Uh, So yeah, it'd be interesting to see what the difference is between the the two. So, all right, that brings us to our next. A track which is piano, and you know obviously who's going to be the soloist for that section, Mr. John Lord. Mm-hmm. Well, Dave Brubeck kind of groove. Great groove. And during the live performance, John Lord did this part on the organ but he said he rewrote it for piano for the album version. So it's in 7-8. Yeah, great choice. And John Lord had written a movie soundtrack right around this time, so this... It has a great movie soundtrack feel to it. Yeah. Just picture like a guy in like a guy with a big handlebar mustache walking into a bar like, <laughs> give me a martini. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, send that lady across the bar a drink. Sounds like did like a sounds like he did like a string swell on the guitar and then they kind of faded it into it almost sounded like it could have been violins. Yeah. Yeah. 
And whereas he takes it to this level here, he'll continue again when he does a few years later. Well, he does Windows after this. He does Saraband. So he's constantly revisiting this, this theme. And as you remember, we really enjoyed Windows quite a bit. It was a fun, mm-hmm. fun one to watch. <laughs> like that little whimsical little piano line he throws in there. <laughs> I feel like it's easier for Lord to integrate the piano into the orchestra than it is to integrate a guitar into it. Yeah. Because, yeah, the piano. And the piano is already an instrument in the orchestra. It's really the only yeah. instrument that has the exact same version. And, you know, obviously there's upright basses and there's different kinds of percussion. There's not a full drum set. So it's the only one that really works that way. I was just about to start counting to see what time that was in, but it stopped. <laughs> I like seven still. You kind of wonder what the musical reading capabilities of the rest of the players are. Obviously, everyone in the orchestra can do it. John Lord can do it. Not sure about mm. Albert Lee. Pretty sure Roger Glover doesn't read music. So then it's kind of like it's almost harder for them to figure out where do I come in? Where does it stop? Where does it start? this would be one of the more interesting comparisons to draw between the live version seeing what this would sound like with organ it's cool they did piano in yeah. one and organ in the other rather than organ in both makes sense with piano it sounds much more organic mm-hmm. <laughs> piano sounds organic ah uh. <laughs> Thank you for giving that the laugh it deserved. (laughs) (laughs) 
It's kind of like the similar thing that we just saw. There was a. It's it, 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 so far I've integrated both instruments for a large portion of the of the movement, and then you know four or five six minutes in, given the instrument a complete solo with no backing or accompaniment at all, and then presumably the orchestra will mm-hmm. rejoin. wonder how much of this is improvisation on his part like i have x number of bars i'm just gonna man was a genius who even knows right, he, he could have <laughs> very he could have just as easily improvised that whole section as he could follow along on the music Sounds semi composed. I mean, it probably is. This would have to be if the <laughs> it's hard to have an entire orchestra Im- improvise together. Well, that's really cool. Well, that really flowed nicely. he wrote most of this in America like in hotel rooms <laughs> wow that sounded like somebody oh it's like strings sounds like somebody kicked a like the violin section out of a window <laughs> hey, that's where he came up with the idea for windows Ah, so piano. Really interesting. Another interesting uh, movement here. How would you rate piano? So, sorry, the sheet's giving me shit right oh, now. Oh, the sheet's always giving you problems. I know. Giving you sheet. The sheet's giving me sheet. Um... See, I give um, I'll give piano a four. Um, I I could have listened to that first section mm. like all day. Like if that whole song was like that jazzy kind of part, yeah. that was really cool. That was really good. Um, I enjoyed that a lot. And then it went into the the whole orchestral, almost uh, at times kind of dissonant mm-hmm. sounding. Um, uh, kind of arrangement, um, which I still think makes it interesting. Um, the the piano I don't um, typically enjoy as much as guitar, but I mean, like we said, like John Lord was a, a genius, and um, there were there were some good sections there, especially toward the end where the the orchestra kind of picked up what John Lord was doing, and it kind of like integrated mm-hmm. really really well. So already, I mean, you can you can tell that you know just two songs in, like the 
the kind of the the melding of the orchestra and the other instruments is already, as you pointed out, more fleshed out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm enjoying I'm enjoying this this listen. Yeah, I will um, also give it a four. I think I, in, I agree with everything you said, except I think I probably enjoy the piano a little bit more than you do um, as an instrument. But uh, other than that, I, I agree with everything you said. And I, th- I feel like he has the benefit of having all the times having tried this leading up to this point and then also having performed essentially the same thing live and saw what worked and what didn't work. And like he said, he his his exact quote was something along the lines of um, – what does he say? Uh, he said that he said that uh, when he was doing it for the organ, he says, I just did it for myself. I rewrote it for piano on the album. So he felt, I guess it was maybe too like self-indulgent or something. I don't know, which is why he ch- changed it to piano. So, for yeah, I mean, the organ worth. would have been more, more um, upfront, maybe a little, um, it, it maybe could have had the, um, the ability to be more, on the rock side or a little more uh, flamboyant, heavy, whatever. Yeah. And um, I, I think that he made the right choice. I think um, it, it really, um, it fit in really well with what they were trying to do on the album. Yeah. And I agree that that, that beginning like jazzy section was, was awesome. That was, I, I could have also just listened. could have been an entire album of that. And that would have been five. <laughs> Give the whole thing a five. Um, <laughs> but all right, so we're moving on to the final movement of the first side of the LP, and that is Drums, featuring you-know-who, Mr. Ian Pace. Ah, looking forward to this. And at times when he's just doing the snare drum, it sounds like it could be just a regular orchestra, right? They've got snare drums. Yeah. I wonder what Richie and Ian were doing while they were recording this. Maybe they're they at the pub. Could be. I mean, imagine this though Ian Pace being as young as he was at this time and already recording music like this yeah I mean it's no wonder he's so good and we talked about the concerto I forgot how old he was I mean but... he started like he started like right out of the gate just recording this really just recording with such just prominent musicians yeah And doing such interesting projects. But he would have been 23 when they recorded this. Yeah. 
can already tell it's him. Yeah, he's got distinctive rolls. That's cool. Only regret is that there's no video. You can't see the orchestra rolling their eyes and things. <laughs> oh, here we go. <laughs> the, the old orchestra guy, he thinks he's good. <laughs> Look at this little show off. Oh, yeah, typical awesome Pacey solo. Yeah, like he does those drum rolls and does those like really abrupt stops and then goes right back into them. did like one of his more recent YouTube videos was like a little tutorial on some of the fundamentals of drums and talking about one handed or a, or doing drum rolls and different ways of doing drum rolls. He talk, talked about paradiddles, all sorts of stuff it was pretty interesting. You know, just knowing what we know about what a powerful player he is, it almost sounds like he was holding back a little bit. I yep. mean, sure, maybe for the um, for the studio. Like, it sounds very measured, but maybe it had to be because of the, you know, maybe it was written out to go along with the orchestra. Well, that bass drum. Yeah, it's... Like I said before, this is recorded really well. Yeah, and I think that's something the concerto missed out on a little bit, which is mostly because technologically it's especially in 1969 difficult to record the two different things and and mix them together and plus you've got Martin Birch involved now so that makes things easier just like just teasing the very edge of that snare drum right now here he comes And it's an interesting format, you know, having, like you said, building each movement around each member of Deep Purple, but also having this piece that's based around the instrument going into a solo, coming out of the solo and still having it. It's still like the drums are present and driving the song, but it's there's something more musical going on as well. And really, I mean, he I mean, John Lord did achieve that. I mean, over half of Mark II is on this album. Yep. Really, if you think about it. Is this really um, is this the real Deep Purple Mark uh, Mark three <laughs> that we're seeing here? We have to rewrite all the marks. Mark three is actually four. Four is five. Squeeze this one. Oh, that's in there. right. Yeah, it's because. Yvonne Elliman is part of Mark two and a half. Yeah, see, it's <laughs> two and a half. They they tried Yvonne Elliman and Tony Ashton. They decided they'd go with Hughes and Coverdale instead. 
going into the next movement. We're gonna have yeah, to think keep, about keep that. That, that would mind. be really interesting, though. Yeah, it'd be really awesome. Well, that would be that would be would have been really interesting. <laughs> I just I'm just thinking of Tony Ashton singing "Burn." Let's burn. <laughs> <laughs> No, just no. <laughs> the sky's red and uh, I don't understand. It'd <laughs> 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 be so great. <laughs> oh. That bass drum just feels like a heartbeat. It's so. And I know Ian it, Pace it really was, does. I it think feels was, like it's like the. Wasn't it uh, Daniel Glass saying that Ian Pace didn't muffle his bit kick drum? Like, it sounds very muffled. Maybe just for the studio he would. I don't know. But it sounds very up close. Like, it sounds like everything was. Yeah. My limited knowledge of how you mic drums, but it sounds like everything was mic'd up really close. Which you get a really studio sound from it. Yeah, and I think part of what what sounds really cool, obviously, is something like this in, in say, the Royal Albert Hall sounds awesome because of the, the reverb and the, you know, listening to Richie's guitar and all that sounds great. But there's also something to be said of having it having a slightly more dry feel to it like it does on this. Sure. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that definitely dry, dry, I think, is a good way of, of putting that because you can tell that, like, you can just hear, you can hear the drums. It's very studio, very, mm-hmm. like, closed mic, like, no kind of, like, reverb or room reverb or anything. And then you hear, like, the, the kick drum, and it sounds just like it's, like, right up in your face. Um, yeah, and you don't is, necessarily need... I, I thought it was a really good... Yeah, you don't need... All that extra reverb on the drums when you've when the orchestra's coming in with so much of it, you know. Um, oh, okay, sure. drums. How do you how do you rank the drums? So I'll give uh, drums three point five. Um, I liked it, but as as we all know, I'm not really a drums person. Um, you know, more guitar, um, and even though this was really good and it was like really impressively uh, recorded, I did feel that, you know, for whatever reason, like uh, I think that Pacey's energy was not as much as like when he has done solos in the past. I know that could be because like there, you know, maybe it was charted out or he was in the studio or he had to, you know, keep within a certain time, you know, to, to, um, you know, for the orchestra to come in at some point, but, um, Again, I, I feel it's kind of a minor criticism. Um, it's just like hearing, like even like the the um, like the his his live drum solos, um, the isolated burn tracks. It's like you could just really hear like the power and the energy that he played with. And this was definitely like skilled, but I didn't feel that spontaneity mm-hmm. um, from him. Which I don't know from from Ian Pace. I, I kind of want that a little bit more. Um, but again, I know, you know, the context to which we're listening to this in, and, you know, I by no means thought that it was a bad performance at all. Just didn't like it as much as the, the first couple of songs. Fair enough. It's still really good, really listenable, you know. Um, I will also give it a 3.5. I, yeah, I, I 
I liked it, and it's it, again, if, if it maps out that same format that we get on the first two movements. Um, th- there's just there's fewer places to go melodically, obviously with drums, but I think they did a really really good job uh, bringing right. that in. I like the ending part, yeah. but it, it felt like in the guitar part there was that little like there were a couple little groove areas and the piano part that was that cool jazzy intro. We didn't really get that in the drum part. We got a cool solo. We got cool integration with the orchestra, but there was no little, um, if you will, like a signature little 16 bars of grooving on, on some sort of, you know, whatever, some sort of beat or something, at least not in the same way. So that's the only reason I would, uh, I, if, if it had something like that, like a, a hook, I guess, if it had a hook, like those other two did, I'd give it that. And I know class, classical music right, isn't for right. hooks, you know, but I'm a hook kind of guy. I'm not necessarily a classical music guy. So when I hear stuff like that, that's, that's what really, sure. it hooks me in. There you go. Um, okay. Mm-hmm. Now it's time to flip the album over. We get to uh, the second side here and we're going to introduce the vocals. Um, the Von Element and Tony Ashton. Here we go. This should be interesting. worth noting that between tracks i just got a message from our new patron hans that he's going to come up with a silly name so in case you're wondering (laughs) next week we should have it i'll give him a deadline so he's he's got to think about it he's got to think about it yeah okay fair enough We're a minute into this six-minute movement, and there's a distinct lack of vocals so far. So maybe they'll just kind of come in the that middle section like we've heard in the previous two movements. good but it seems low in the mix yeah it sounds it sounds distant yeah and again they could be going for that because that's disappointing because it's classical music being it is more of a an instrument rather than the vocal and in, in pop or rock music you're expecting it to be in the foreground a little bit more but I don't know. She was pretty forward in Jesus Christ Superstar, though. 
Yeah, but that's that's a musical, you know. This is an orchestral piece. Hmm. This is really kind of different style for her voice. It's very like minor sounding. I think she's she's doing Gillen's part too, which is so she's kind of sounds like she's at the bottom of her range. Oh, she, she sounds great, but she sounds fantastic. She's kind of disappointed in the production. Yeah. It's an even not even just that it needs more volume, but it just EQ'd differently or something because it's just it gets lost a little with all the other instruments. I love that. He's very Joe Cocker sounding. But again, he's even lost (laughs) on the mix, too. I love the horn, that like kind of call and response with the horns. That's really cool. Yeah. track mm, yeah there's a very different vocal for the two of them right. I mean like you said if it was obviously written for Gillen mm-hmm. they kept it the same you know kind of uh, like the, the tone of the whole song was really kind of uh, like almost like too you know melancholy for them yeah so no. what would you rank but, vocals? Yeah, you know, I give it a 3.5. Um, and here's why. Um, I think that the, I thought the music was really good. Um, like it had this really kind of uh, sad quality to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I really enjoyed. Um, I really got to take 
some points away because I'm really just kind of disappointed with how the vocals are integrated. I mean, it's supposed to be a showcase for the vocals and mm-hmm. I don't really think they were showcased. I mean, you had two really good vocalists. I mean, I'll say it about Tony Ash and he's really distinctive, but I mean, Yvonne Elliman, I mean, you know, you've heard how I've sung her praises before saying that her voice is basically like uh, just perfect. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think you, you hit on it is like, it wasn't EQ'd right. It wasn't, it wasn't mixed high enough. And I mean, I get that, you know, everything has to be together, you know, uh, mixed together with the orchestra. But I mean, I feel like in this, like she sounded really, as opposed to everything else sounded really kind of up close and like high in the mix. And then you have the vocals, which, you know, are supposed to be featured in this and they sounded really kind of echoey and far away. And, you know, it just almost, almost kind of like an afterthought. Yeah. Yeah. Um, didn't really feel like a feature to me. Um, so, um, I, I don't know if it were, if it were mixed differently or maybe even if it were just like Yvonne Elliman, you know, if they had featured one vocalist and, you know, done something a little more intentional with it, I don't know. It kind of missed the mark for me a little bit. I was, I was had higher expectations with her. So I'm a little, a little disappointed. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I'll also give it a 3.5, but I wouldn't say it had anything to do with her. I think her and Tony Ashton's performances no, were, no. were both great. Yeah, higher expectations, I guess. Yeah, I just don't want it to sound like uh, it's anything either of them did. Because I, I, I really like the, I, you know how I, I, I like trading off vocals and multiple vocalists. I think that always interests me. Um, mm-hmm. So I love what she was singing. I loved what he was singing when he came in kind of really not yeah it kind of surprised me just how well he 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 worked with it it's just to me it's all in the production i think i could see this easily getting a four or 4.5 if they were just brought forward in the mix a little bit maybe compressed a little more EQ'd a little differently which is funny because this is the 2000 the 2008 remaster so it it had to be kind of a conscious decision Hmm. to make them it sounded to me it's kind of like the difference between me talking. It, it sounded like they're too far from the mic. Like it's me talking here or I rolled back my seat a little bit and I'm talking here. So right now I'm saying all the same things, but I sound distant and far away because I'm about an extra foot away from the right. mic. Now I come back up and right. it, it didn't sound like they were close enough to the microphone. And that might be something that's really hard to fix if that was the case. But of course, it's I'm just guessing. I have no idea. But I can't mm-hmm. imagine that that would have been what they did. It just seems really weird. Um, but yeah, yeah, a little a little disappointing because I feel like that. I still think the emotion behind it and the performances and when they both start singing together, it works really, really well because they've. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's very much we're joking about it, but it's it's a lot like Coverdale and Hughes because um, they're two people who have very, very different voices, and that really to me works really well having that you know hughes or element have that higher more smoothed out uh voice coverdale and ashton have a more gravelly raspy kind of husky sounding voice and when you put them together it sounds just like magic and um it's a shame that didn't get produced a little better so yeah yeah i agree all right but anyway that's that Second to last track here, we're going to be featuring one of our favorites, Mr. Roger Glover, for the bass guitar movement. (laughs) 
A raunchy, distorted bass there. Love it. the bringer of war. Really extra appreciate this, because, you know, this isn't Roger Glover's wheelhouse. But Mm -hmm. he's rocking it. would have gotten if Roger Glover backed out. Now you get two bass tracks going here. Like hard pan left and right. What if they called Nikki Semper back? (laughs) (laughs) They didn't get Glover. really interesting. I mean, obviously they couldn't have done this live. <laughs> no, but this is really... Uh, Unless they got like Victor Wooten to do it, really he could cool. probably do that live. <laughs> <laughs> Much like Ian Pace, he's kind of playing with those, playing with the tempo a little. also something really nice about this like that John Lord is like wrote this whole thing around like it's like a, it's like a love letter to his fellow bandmates you know featuring all of their styles and their personalities yeah. it's really cool <laughs> and extra funny that Gillen and Blackmore are like yeah no thanks <laughs> well I wrote this about you uh, featured her on your specialties eh, Albert, nah. Le- Albert Lee can play it nah. <laughs> Thank you. 
great little dynamics of him like kind of playing really softly in the background. <laughs> a funny little ending. Boop, 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 boop. <laughs> little like little fanfare. It's like, ladies and gentlemen, Roger Glover. Boop, 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 boop. <laughs> Just see him like kind of walking off stage with his bass as they play that. Oh. <laughs> Bye. See ya. <laughs> All right. How do you? What's your thoughts on bass guitar? Hmm. He's he I looks think about it. He looks deep in second. thought and this one's throwing him folks. If you're not watching the YouTube video. Yeah. No, it was it was it was good. It was good. Um You know what? I I am going to give it a a 3.5. I was thinking about giving it higher. Mm-hmm. Uh but I ranked it a little bit lower because I, while I enjoyed it, there's it like hearing, hearing the solo bass like that. It's almost kind of like, um, it was cool, but it was almost kind of jarring. Mm-hmm. Like it didn't, it didn't fit in as well as like the, the guitar, the piano with the orchestra, Yep. but it was definitely a novel idea, which I, I liked and I appreciated. And there were some, there were some good parts in there. Um, like the, the overdubs were really, uh, a different type of thing that you know we haven't really don't think we've heard anybody overdub yet for the uh the solo instruments which was really you know kind of a cool thing uh to get that kind of melody in there um but i i don't know i felt some of his choices were a little mm, um what's the word unsettling i guess mm-hmm. I mean, I like the, I like, um, I like um, his, like, I love the bass. I like his bass playing, but I guess it's a different type of, you know, bass playing that I'm into. Like you said, it's, um, you know, I'm like, you know, like something that's a little more hooky. Mm-hmm. And this was more of like, um, just kind of a, a solo. Yeah. Um, which, you know, was, was cool nonetheless. Um, like, I mean, any of my critical, uh, you know, thoughts on any of these songs doesn't mean that, I disliked them or they weren't good um, because I do like them and they're all good. But, mm-hmm. you know, this one was, um, it was definitely cool, but not one of my, one of my favorites. I still think the first track is, you know, still up there. Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, I, I, I agree also with the 3.5 and kind of for the same reason I gave it to, not the same as the at the vocals, but as as the drums, where I, I felt like there wasn't that cool little hook at any point. It was really the the kind of the hookiest thing I think was when he was just going dum 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 with the one bass and then the other ear. He was kind of doing some other stuff, which was really cool. Yeah. Um, and as a studio um, effort, it's a really cool track. And the whole album is just I'm really loving it. It's it's a lot of fun to listen to. But if you um. <laughs> excuse me but if you look at it as it's um as its own uh you're glaring at me like i (laughs) you're looking at me like why didn't you use the cough switch (laughs) no 
<laughs> looked like, 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 what are you doing? I was, I thought about it. I was like, I was going to, I was like, if I use the cough switch, though, it's just going to be an awkward silence because I'm in the middle of talking. Um, but yeah. So I wasn't I, thinking that at all. You, you, your eyes got all narrow. You were like, what are you doing, man? Um, <laughs> you son of a bitch. <laughs> have these things for anyway. Um, but yeah, yeah. I, I, like I said, I, I think it's a, it's a good, uh, it's it's a really good track and I'm really enjoying it. But yeah, it, it didn't have the same kind of X factor that those other tracks did. So that's why I give it that rating. Mm. And with that, I think we are ready to move on to the final movement, which is called Organ. You know who that's going to be. Here we go. Oh boy, this is a king-size track too. Twelve minutes. Yeah, it's the uh, the standout longest track. Well, it's John Lord's album. It's called Organ. Closes it out. How can you blame him for that? Whatever the heck he wants. Exactly. Here he comes. It's kind of like all excited. Here he comes. It's, he's got the really gentle church organ tone on right now. It sounds like the what he's playing in April, you know. But, you know, he's going to yes. be cranking that Leslie up at some point. He's just going to start bending, bending that organ backwards. I so. I gotta say, I'm calling it right now. Rocking those I'll, tubes. I'll be very disappointed if he doesn't start rattling tubes and <laughs> bending the thing backwards. Yeah. Like I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna demand my money back for this purchase. That CD store is still open. There's already a piano player in that orchestra somewhere, so you can hear some piano being played. This is just like a tease for me. I'm like, when's it going to come? When's it going to really belt, belt out that organ? Just messing with us now. Like a stray, little stray guitar going on there. Bass, the drums. Comes the organ. Kind of sounds like everybody is kind of ramping there. up. 
Nice. This is what was missing from those other... This is the hook. Almost sounds a little Mark 1. Yeah. Oh, it was like a tease. I wanted more of that. <laughs> cool they're kind of echoing what he just played yeah yeah I, I, I noticed that really nice sounds like listen learn read on a little bit <laughs> just... yeah right like mark one but like with better production yeah exactly Now this is perfect. The whole orchestra backing up the band like that was great. I love that stuff. And it's like very like it sounded like a that sounded more like a Mark II jam, but like more happy, <laughs> like like a more ma like major dominant sort yeah. of thing. That sounds the most like the concerto when they were doing some of that back and forth stuff. Halfway mark right there. That's kind of like John Williams now. I'm watching a, a like a, one of the spooky parts of an Indiana Jones movie. <laughs> They bring out the monkey brains or whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Weighing the weighing the sandbag. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you listening, John is doing a picture perfect imitation of Harrison Ford emptying some sand from a sandbag. They're not really bringing in any guitar in these jams. 
at least for the organ part. Yeah, I was just I was thinking that. Yeah, they maybe Albert Lee was just like, nope, one day <laughs> done. Bye. <laughs> That's better than they got from Richie. Hey, I'm not missing it from here. This is some good stuff. Oh, this is great, yeah. I mean, basically, you have three-fifths of Mark II right here. This reminds me of that, uh... Remember that... Jamming out. The outtake from Who Do We Think We Are when, like, Roger Glover was stuck in traffic and Richie played bass and they did, a, like, a bass organ and yeah, drum yeah. jam? It's... It, yeah. It reminds me of that. That same kind of vibe. Hmm. That would have been great if Richie said, I'll play on it, but I'm playing the bass and kicked Roger Glover out. So you had Albert Lee, Richie Blackmore and bass. Well, it wouldn't have been the first time he kicked some ass on bass. Yeah, he sure does. Lest, lest we forget the long live rock and roll album several years later. That's true, right? And this is, yeah, this is exactly what I would have wanted to hear a little bit more of in, in the the drums and bass guitar section. Like, right. this could just as easily have been the little bass hook. It's got a great grooving bass line to it. Yeah. You toned down the organ, obviously, but. Wow. I mean, I think that uh, Glover really shines when he's locked into a groove like this. Yeah. Or that we just heard. Another Indiana Jones sounding scene. Snakes. I hate snakes. I hate snakes. <laughs> Our Harrison Ford impressions leave a little to I don't be blame them. I don't like snakes. Nah, screw snakes. time for those tube rattles. I feel like a more apt title for this would have been like the band as opposed to Oregon. That would have been cool, yeah, bringing the whole band in for a Because, I mean, you know, the organ is definitely, yeah, the organ's definitely getting its time in here, but, I mean, it, it, it works because the whole band is in there, minus the guitar. Yep.
<laughs> Roger's going nuts. Kind of a whoa! <laughs> Never <laughs> surprised me. Um, <laughs> oh, they coming back? It's like at least ten seconds of silence at the end here. It's kind of like a, a spooky sort of ending. Not what I was, not what I was expecting. Oh well, no, no, no tube rattling. No tube rattles. Well, that's all right though. It was right. some really great organ stuff there, and some good hooks. What do you uh? What do you rank organ? I'll give that a four. Um, I think that there was some really, there's some really good things in there. Like I said, I I think it would would have been more. I don't know if it would be more appropriate, but maybe more accurate to say like band. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Would have been cool if um you know the guitar had been in on it too. Um, it sounded it points it sounded a little bit incomplete i guess mm-hmm. you know it would have been cool if the guitar were in there even doing like a rhythm yep while john lord was doing his thing over it but it was nice to hear the other guys in there doing the interplay with the band similar to what they did in concerto mm-hmm. originally um only a little more fully realized here and um even though lord didn't rip on the organ um they still did he did some really cool stuff as, as the band did, they locked into some really cool grooves and um, yeah, I mean, it didn't really do anything that was expected either. Like, you know, we thought like maybe we'd hear that <laughs> at the end or something would have been a cool way to finish yeah, it. Finish but, it was just that rattling. Um, yeah. I thought it was really, yeah. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. But instead it was kind of that little, a little violin going all the way up and then just that scary like orchestra hit where we're like that ah. <laughs> <laughs> and it just 10 seconds of silence it just startled you like boo but yeah overall <laughs> <ends. I'm> like <laughs> <laughs> oh jesus my hiccups went away <laughs> all right i will um i will match you with the four almost completely matched up on this whole album but yeah i i i really liked that i thought it was a return to form i thought maybe uh it brought in that hook part again that that I thought was missing in a few tracks, and uh, it would have been it would have been cool maybe if they just had switched up solos throughout that one or did like like you said a band if they've already if they had a piano. But it's cool that they had the piano in the beginning part and then the organ in the later part because organ is again not not an yeah. not an orchestra instrument, so it it it's still it was still interesting just like the guitar part. So overall, um, yeah, that's right, uh, yeah. I'm sticking I'm sticking with the four. All right, so uh, that's Gemini Suite, the album version. How does this uh, how does this stack up in our rankings, John? When we look at it versus, all right. Well, let's see. Well, we have a combined rating of um, seven point five eight. Mm-hmm. All right, and let me see. So that puts us um. Ooh, that puts us kind of, uh, there we go, hmm. kind of in the middle here. Um, 
Yeah, almost, yeah, almost middle, middle-ish. Um, so that's um, a little, little, uh, little more than a, a uh, little more of a rating than James Gang Bang. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, about a few points less than White Snake's Trouble. Mm. So that's where Same. we're good company where we are falling in there. Yeah. Yep. That's actually and, a little um, above the middle when you look at it. Yeah, let's see. We got what do you have? Yeah. Yeah. A little, yeah, about middle. Middle. No, well, is it? It's more towards the. Oh yeah, because I have the yeah Slightly. middle high. Yeah, I always I always sort it with the highest ratings at the bottom. So yeah. it's like I do it backwards. Um, because I'm a dumb cough. <laughs> I don't pay attention. Um, but yeah, I mean overall in our in our our ratings, uh two varied um slightly, uh very slight variance. I actually had a little bit more rated a Teensy bit higher than you. The strength we of the guitar part, in. yeah, pretty close. Yeah, yeah the 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 first one was definitely my favorite. Um, I have to say, a couple of impressions that I got like halfway through the album, it made me think that um, when this was actually, it's it's kind of an interesting concept that this exists because until now. I realize what this whole thing makes me think of is when Kiss did the solo albums several years later, this is kind of without the orchestra, but this is kind of what I thought it was going to be like um, because I didn't know how this kind of thing worked. I didn't know that like each individual guy could be like a songwriter and, you know, go out and get their own band. And, you know, it's like, I thought that like, you know, um, Paul's album would feature vocals and Aces would feature guitar parts, like similar to this, like, you know, jeans would be like a, like, you know, 10 songs of like bass solos, like we heard on the bass. You know what I mean? It might've been an improvement. Well, that's the thing is, (laughs) (laughs) but that's the thing is I didn't know how that kind of thing would work. Um, So I, so this is actually, it's, it's kind of weird because this, actually this type of thing exists in a form. And I was just like, Oh gee, like years later, Oh boy, how stupid was I to think that that was what that kind of thing would be like when right. really somebody kind of imagined and executed this kind of concept. But I mean, with an orchestra, um, but that's kind of my personal connection to it. Uh, kind of, you know, kind of weird, um, you know, that that's what I thought, but um, you know, overall the, the impressions of this album was, um, um, I would say, um, I would say it's a mixed bag mm-hmm. for, um, is, is my impression. Like, um, definitely all good. Uh, but I think some things worked better than others. Yeah. And I think it's definitely like a step in the right direction to improving on the concerto, like in terms of like, overall, the production was great. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, um, and the execution of like integrating the orchestra and the, you know, solo instruments I thought was really great. Um, there were some parts that I don't think worked out as well, but yeah, overall, I think very strong, um, you know, and, and really impressive too. Just, I don't know, always impressed by the deep purple offshoot projects and, you know, all the different things that they were trying to achieve and experiment with and, I mean, that's one of the reasons that we love the Deep Purple family. 
And just for a little comparison, we ranked combined ranking for the concerto was a 6.0 even, and this was a 7.58. So, and, and I, that, that, you know, sometimes you look at these rankings and ranking things song by song. I was thinking about this the other day, ranking things song by song isn't necessarily the greatest indicator because, you know, you could look at, for example, the butterfly ball. Uh, if you rank each song individually stacked up, I gave it a 4.28, you gave it a 4.03, but I would rank the, if I had to just rank the album, it'd be a five for me. Um, so it's, it's, it's an imperfect way of doing it, but it is a kind of fun to break down things song by song and get really, uh, critical about it. But I would say that, that this works, it, it generally, in general, it works well. And I would say that this is that much of a quantum leap above where the concerto was while the concerto was great and inspired and awesome. And this unique experience, Mm. he took it and improved upon it. And we look at, we talk about Richie doing that all the time, taking a style of song and just taking it to the next level on another album. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But in this case, I think this is a a huge triumph for, for John Lord. Yes. Yes, indeed. And, um, I think that, uh, the ratings, the rating systems, I mean, uh, you know, you listen to any podcast that do any kind of, uh, rating systems. I mean, you have some podcasts that do whole albums and they don't, rank the songs individually. They kind of rank them, you know, at the end, like this is my least favorite to best favorite, or some of them just do like one mm-hmm. song. Yep. Um, you know, some do like, uh, you know, like a whole album and, you know, so, I mean, it's like, it, like you said, it's all, it's all subjective. Take it with a grain of salt. You know, I mean, you could listen to um, an album or a song tomorrow or next week and feel differently about it and be like, Oh, why did I rank that? So like, there are things that I've listened to like after a show and just been mm-hmm. like, Oh, I should have ranked this higher. Yeah. Like this is actually better than I thought it was. So, I mean, yeah. You Take know. it for what it is. Um, but still, I feel that it's, it's pretty accurate for what we're doing. I agree. Um, before we move on, we have to thank our foundation level patrons. Coming in at the $1 made-up name tier, we have Els Murders, who I believe was like patron number three or something. Very early, four or five, early on. Uh, same thing with Spacey Noodles. The Unfastened Leaky Mausoleum, Michael Vader, Stephen Somerville, the Concerto 1999 Fanatic, Raf Calf, Spike the Rock Cat, JJ Stenard, and heyo, for real this time, Hans Lilia. Thank you for joining us at the $1 level. We appreciate it. All right. All right. Well, good. I was. I thought I was going to have to take over Leaky Mausoleum because you weren't <laughs> coming up with any more names. I'm back, him. baby. I got a few more. And what? We'll, we'll right. have to be like. Ch- right. I'll have to ask Leaky to change their name. <laughs> Could you be regular Mausoleum <laughs> or something else? Um, you know, you start something. You know, whatever a year and a half ago, not knowing where it's going to lead, and then you're filled with regrets. <laughs> no regrets. And it might be a little strong. Um, I've painted myself into a corner, let's say. Um, okay, so that's the Gemini Suite. Um, it came out. There's a couple quick reviews in the Melody Maker. Um, uh, one little snippet is, it's all turned out rather splendidly. I'd say I would agree. And Beat Instrumental says, Lord seems to have blended classical and rock in exactly the right proportions, where both disciplines act as complements to each other rather than as opponents. I think that's a great, great uh, quick assessment. The Daily Mirror says... Mm-hmm. Blow the bigots, knickers to the knockers. 
British stuff. <laughs> when Deep Purple's John Lord unveiled his what? Gemini Suite in concert last year, the Mooners had a field day. Now it's out on LP. And they are already at it again. To me, this album is exciting, colorful, aggressive, beautiful, inventive, virile. What more could you want? Very well put. It's a resounding hallelujah from... Jeez, what was all that? Blow the bigots, knickers to the knockers. <laughs> knickers to the knockers. It's just like, <laughs> bend down the hatches, flipper the gibbets. <laughs> <laughs> Hoist up the mizzenmast. Um, <laughs> Hoist the main... <laughs> uh, the review from uh, Disc and Music Echo shortly after the album's release says getting the best of both purples. John Lord and Deep Purple seem to be finding their own musical levels, a compromise certain to draw the best from both. Purple lean far more on commercial rock, while Lord hides himself away writing large works like Gemini Suite. This is perhaps a natural extension of his concerto for group and orchestra, but more than that, it is a showcase for four excellent musicians combined with one vast depth of Malcolm Arnold's London Symphony Orchestra. It's easy to dismiss works like this as pretentious nonsense and equally easy for alleged classical music experts to dismiss it as diluted and unoriginal. Neither criticisms are fair nor justified. The main musical themes are well stated and play heavily on the emotions after the style of, say, Elgar or, and Tchaikovsky. Uh, the opus is broken out in six parts. For guitar, this by the superb Albert Lee, piano, Lord, drums, Ian Pace, vocals, Yvonne Elliman and Tony Ashton, bass guitar, Roger Glover, also doing a very fine job, and organ, Lord again. This album is very easy to listen to, and you don't have to be hip to either heavy or classical music. Quality, excellent. Value, fine. Once you're inside, a rather revolting sleeve. So, a little final parting shot at the album cover. Uh, calling it revolting. I don't know if it's revolting, but it's definitely weird. Mm. Um. Yeah. Uh, I mean, overall, there's some pretty, pretty decent reviews there. You know, I mean, I was kind of expecting that they were going to, you know, that the usual stuff that we hear about on some of these reviews is just like uh, overblown hype, uh, yeah. self-indulgent, blah, 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 you know, and it's like they actually were kind to it, you know? Yeah, for sure. And rightfully so. Um, so they, on January 4th, 1972, they performed this again, this time in Germany, at the Munich Concert Hall, conducted by Eberhard Schoner, who did Windows, who we've seen before with the crazy hair. Um, everyone performed Eberhard. except for Yvonne Elliman, because she was busy with the stage version of Jesus Christ Superstar. In October of 1973, Lord and Schoner again arranged another live performance, the Gemini Suite. Afterward, Lord was asked to do a new piece with Shona, which evolved into Windows. And if you want more on that, look at a Deep Purple Podcast, episode number 41, where we covered Windows and Ray Fenwick's uh, great yellow suit. Um, check it out. Um, but yeah, that's it. That's it, folks. That's the Gemini Suite, the album version. Uh, in, I don't know, a couple years, maybe we'll get around to the Deep Purple live performance. But we covered this one first because this was the one that People heard first, unless you were at that live show of the Gemini Suite. You didn't hear it until the 90s when it was released. So there you have it. The Gemini Suite. Um, we did the patrons. I remembered the patrons. So we're done. That's it. That's all we got for this week. <laughs> I'm almost like forget. I'm getting Arr. used to this new format after how many 12 episodes we've been doing it. Starting to get used to it. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, until next week. See you around, my friend. Land ho! Thank you for listening to the Deep Purple Podcast. 
If you like what you hear and would like more episodes in the future, please donate on Patreon to support the show. You can also leave us a review in Apple Podcasts to help new people discover the show. You can follow us on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook for show updates. See deeppurplepodcast.com for more details. Thank you for listening. This meeting is being recorded. Jesus. Yeah, that scared the hell out of me. (laughs) Sorry. The recording has stopped. Is burn-